That's awesome. Good morning, church. And uh, we, we every, every first uh, Sunday of the month, we want to keep emphasizing another missionary or mission that we support as a church to remind us that the work of God extends far beyond the four walls of our church, and uh, God is at work all throughout the world, and He's also at work right here in this city, and uh, we're so blessed to be a small part of that. So um, uh, we're going to continue to lift up in prayer and support these missionaries every month as we remember uh, the work that God is doing through them. And we are also embarking here uh, into a new year. Happy 2022. And um, I don't know if you've seen that little picture where it's like 2020 T-O-O, <laughs> 2022. Let's hope not. <laughs> Except for all the great things that God has done, I'm expecting greater things yet to come. And uh, we have some opportunities for you guys, especially for men and women in the ministry, to um, really get involved in some things that are really going to help form your spiritual disciplines and formation. I want to remind you of a few of those things. Uh, first of all, uh, ladies, there is a women's conference coming up. You know, we're doing this one-year Bible reading plan together, and... Um, this women's conference we're going to have is on uh, Saturday, I believe it's uh, January 22nd, and we are going to get you guys, ladies, all together, and we have a special guest, Debbie Bryson, who's going to be here from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. It's going to be a time of uh, instruction and interactive um, uh, teaching regarding how do you really personally study the Bible and get engaged with God through the Word of God. Uh, throughout this year. And so that's going to be a good time, but we need you to sign up. Uh, so ladies, make sure you do that on your way out today and sign up for that. And then men and women, we have some, uh, uh, some ministry opportunities that we're going to be going through as men and as women. On the last Sunday of each month, we are going to gather and go through um, a couple books uh, written by a great commentator and pastor, Kent Hughes, and his wife, Barbara. The Disciplines of a Godly Man and the Disciplines of a Godly Woman, and we're going to be studying that book together, learning how to build our lives upon the foundation of Christ. We're going to be breaking into small groups, building relationship, learning how to pray for one another, uh, encourage one another, keep each other accountable, um, and so that's going to be a great journey for our church, and we want to really encourage you to sign up to be part of that as well. With that being said, we are going to be uh, back through our study in Hebrews we want to welcome and thank you for uh, coming out this morning through, through the, um, I guess the new year brought on the new weather, didn't it? Uh, I finally get it, okay? I finally get it. And uh, but we got a lot of people watching online this morning, so welcome to those of you who are watching online. We're going to be looking at Hebrews, and we're going to be in chapter 3 this morning. And so if you would grab your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And once you're there, if you would stand, uh, or as you turn there, please stand as we're going to read the scripture together. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15 this morning. Verses 1 through 15. We've taken a, a little bit of a hiatus from the book of Hebrews as we've been going through Christmas and the holiday season. Uh, we're going to jump back in to uh, this incredibly deep passage this morning. We've been looking at the first couple chapters at how Jesus is better. That's the theme of our study. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. What is what and who is Jesus better than? The bigger question is, uh, what could be better than Jesus? Jesus is better than everything. He is a pinnacle of all that God has done. We've seen that he has the better voice than the prophets. We've seen that he has the greater authority and name than the angels as the uncreated son of God, that he is the better man. He's done what we cannot do. And the last time we discovered together that Jesus holds a better victory, that he has been victorious over Satan, over the enemy, over death and hell itself. And today we're going to see that Jesus deserves a better honor. And so Hebrews chapter 3, I'm going to read the odd-numbered verses. If you would join together on the even-numbered verses, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. 
For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works forty years. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Wow. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. While it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Heavenly Father, we believe that through this word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, today, your voice will be speaking to us through Jesus. And so, Lord, we want to be those who have ears to hear what the Spirit says. We do not want to harden our hearts, to stiffen our necks, to resist your instruction or your calling or your voice that calls out to us daily to follow after you. And so, Lord, we come recognizing our own tendency to wander, to stray, and asking you, Lord, to grip take a grip once again of our hearts, of our lives, especially as we enter into a new year. May it be one where we are resolved to heed your voice, to listen, and to obey. Lord, we pray even now that you would open us, our hearts, our minds, to your instruction and to your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I think in the book of Hebrews, uh, a lot is often lost on us Gentiles. We often don't fully appreciate the fullness of the Jewish sentiments and overtones of the entire book. And today we enter a passage where we have uh, entitled the message, Jesus Deserves the Greater Honor. And comparing here in this passage, the author will be comparing Moses, who the Jewish audience he was writing to placed in the greatest seat of honor, to Jesus, who is greater than Moses and who deserves a greater honor, the greater heed than Moses does. And to the Jewish audience, Moses was that Hebrew hero, so to speak, as we'll see in a moment. But before we get into that comparison and draw out our applications this morning, we want to not underestimate or take for granted the, the tone that is set in the beginning of the chapter, right in verse 1. He addresses his audience by giving them a picture of their own identity, who they are in Jesus Christ, as opposed to who they were in Moses under the law. And here's how he introduces the subject to his audience. He addresses them in verse 1. He says, therefore, holy brethren, he calls them, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider, take heed to, be mindful of the apostle and the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. So basically, the whole chapter he's going to say is based on this premise that we have been called and chosen, that we are holy brethren, not because of anything that we've done within ourselves, but because Jesus has made us holy, and that we have been partakers of the heavenly calling through the apostle and high priest of our confession, that is Christ Jesus. 
and that we are, because of these things, to consider or to be mindful of Christ Jesus. The holy brethren, as he puts in verse 1, indicates specifically that he's talking to a Christian audience. That's very important. The unsaved Gentile or the unsaved Jew wouldn't be given the title holy brethren. That is a title reserved for those who have found righteousness through faith in Christ. United into one family by the heavenly calling of God. And notice that word there, partakers. He says you are partakers of the heavenly calling. I like that because we're not merely observers of the heavenly calling. We don't merely know about the heavenly calling. The Bible says we partaken of the heavenly calling, which tells me, you know, there is something far more important than simply discovering your earthly calling. And that's what most of the world pursues, right? What am I going to do here and now on this earth? Which is an important aspect of, of life. But the most important thing you could ever do in this life is understand the heavenly calling of God on your life. The calling to eternity, the calling to salvation, the calling to peace with God and to do things on this earth that matter for eternity. And so as heirs of such an amazing calling, such an amazing gift, what should we do when we are tempted by the world and by the flesh and by the devil to move ourselves away from the priority of Christ? We're to consider Jesus. And I love that phrase, to consider Jesus, the apostle. That means he's the ambassador from heaven that declares to us the intention of God and the high priest of our confession. Not like the Old Testament high priest who, who himself had sin and couldn't fully intercede for the people but had to confess and sacrifice for his own sin as well. No, the high priest, Jesus, is a high priest of our perfect confession, the perfect high priest between us and God. And I love this theme to consider Christ. It's the same language we're going to find again in chapter 12 when he tells us to consider Christ or to think upon Jesus. And it's amazing to me when I think about this phrase, consider Christ, how fixing our eyes as Christians Fixing our eyes on Jesus actually centers us back to what really matters in life. The political world is going crazy. I don't know how to fix it. The author would say, consider Jesus. My financial picture is in ruins. I don't know what the new year, new year holds. Everything's gone wrong. The Bible would say, consider Jesus. My marriage seems to be falling apart. I I can't seem to get over this struggle of sin. The Bible would exhort you. You don't need self-help. You don't need more New Year's resolutions. What you need to do is consider Jesus. Dive deeply into the person of Christ, into his teachings, into his instruction, into his death and resurrection, into his power. Tune into his voice. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I love that hymn uh, written in the 20s by uh, one of the first missionaries to the Islamic area of Algeria, Lilius Trotter. And in that hymn, we, we know the famous words. It's called The Heavenly Vision. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. You guys know it? Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That little uh, verse was actually taken out of a much larger writing that she wrote. It was called The Heavenly Vision. Um, And the work, the overall work is entitled Focused. She was writing about the power of focusing on Jesus. And here is the, I want to read to you the the work around that one verse that we just sang. It says, For if the Son of Righteousness has risen upon our hearts, there is an ocean of grace and love and power all around us, an ocean to which all earthly light is but a drop, 
and it is ready to transfigure us as the sunshine transfigured the dandelion and on the same condition that we stand full face to God, gathered up, focused lives, intent on one aim, Christ. These are the lives on which God can concentrate blessing. It is all for all by law as unwavering as any law that governs the material universe. And Satan knows well the power of the Christian being concentrated on Christ. If a soul is likely to get under the sway of the inspiration, this one thing I do, Satan will turn all his energies to bring in side interests that will shatter the gathering intensity. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The power of that analogy to be so focused and consumed with Christ that the distractions that Satan tries to throw in our midst in this world all seem to fade away in light of who he is. And the author here wants us to consider Jesus lest other things steal from us the blessedness of seeing him clearly. So in considering Jesus, now he's going to dive into some very Hebrew ideas. And again, these might be lost on us, but trust me, as we get through this, the, the scholastic aspect of the passage, they hold some very important application. So we're going to see that the author calls the audience to give Jesus the greatest honor, the honor due his name for what he has done. I've broken it into three points if you're taking notes. First, he wants to tell us to honor the faithfulness of Jesus. To honor the faithfulness of Jesus. Verse 2 tells us, regarding Jesus, who was faithful to him, that is God, who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. So here he introduces to the audience, to the Jewish audience, the person of Moses. And he's going to compare Moses to Jesus. And he brings up the fact that Moses, quote, was faithful in his house, faithful in God's house. And Jesus, too, was faithful in his, in his ministry. Now, when you think about Moses, Moses faithfully led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness all the way to the doorstep of the promised land. And that's where things take us a southern turn for the people of Israel because they, Moses is not the one that ends up leading them into, across the Jordan, into that promised land, which holds significance for the, few, the verses to come, but keep that in mind. But at first, I want you to think about what you would think of when you were a Jew and you heard the name Moses, all right? No one gets higher, a higher seat than Moses, in fact, the seat that, that the uh, teacher or the rabbis would, would uh, use in the synagogues would often be called the seat of Moses, ex expressing the authority that Moses had as the, really the founder of the, of the Jewish nation after Abraham, the one who, by all accounts, to the Jewish audience was a religious hero a political hero, and a military hero. He was a religious hero in that God, the Bible says, spoke to Moses like a man speaks to another man, face to face. And by the hand of Moses, God, God brought forth the divine law from heaven, right? The Ten Commandments and all the laws that would govern the going ins and going outs of the Hebrew nation. Under Moses' leadership, the tabernacle of God was established, which brought forth the very real presence of God to be with his people in that tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant was brought. This, old, this, this covenant of God's people was solidified under the leadership of Moses. Moses wielded miraculous power through, through whom God parted seas and created serpents and healed people and caused water to come out of rocks and manna to fall from heaven. Moses was this religious hero, but he was also a political hero. 
He went face to face, toe to toe, toe with, with the most powerful man and the most powerful nation on earth and won, leading out God's people in a huge political victory out of Egypt without any oppression, without any problems, liberating God's people from 430 years of slavery. He sculpted a band of former slaves into a mighty nation of people. He brought law and order and strong, just leadership. He was also a military hero. He converted this whole group of former slaves into a mighty, fighting army. His hands raised, caused the sun to stand still to a great military victory for the nation of Israel. In fact, Moses was so revered by the nation of Israel that when he died... We come to the conclusion that his body was taken by Michael the archangel and hidden away so that the nation wouldn't be tempted to worship his grave and his bones. I mean, this was Moses. And here, the author brings up Moses and it elicits all these thoughts within the Jewish mind of their hero, their national hero. And basically, he's going to tell them, Jesus is so much better. And I think this is an important part to emphasize. Isn't it easy almost to idolize the heroes of the past? Perhaps even giving, giving them more honor than they deserve? Presidents and pastors and spiritual leaders and Heroes of, of our past, and, and quite frankly, our nation is riddled with them, aren't, they, aren't we? we? We have the strength and the character of presidents like Washington and the tenacity of Lincoln and the wisdom of Reagan and preachers with fire of Edwards and the insight of Spurgeon and the boldness of Billy Graham. I will be honest, and the current current temperature of today's political and spiritual world, it'd be pretty easy for me to think of, I wish we could just go back to the good old days. <laughs> I wish we could just get someone like that. You know, why don't we have people like that anymore? And, and in, in a sense, the, the audience that the author is writing to, in their minds were going, persecution is coming, and it was about to come big time, not far after the letter was written. Things are getting heavy. We're being ostracized from our community. You know, things were pretty great if we could just go back. Just go back to Moses. Go back to our national hero. Go back to what we know, what's safe, what's secure. And the author says, no. Going back is not the option. But looking to the one who is better is the option. Looking to Jesus and recognizing that no matter what happens here and now, Jesus is the one who conquered death. Jesus is the one who's coming back. Jesus is the one who reigns supreme over all and over everything. Don't put your hope in man. The Bible says it's foolish to put your hope in man. But place your hope in Christ. Here Jesus is introduced in comparison to Moses. And we're told that Moses was a faithful representative to God in his house. And I'll, I'll add the word almost. Moses was almost perfectly faithful. You know, Moses, Moses had a, a little incident in, in Numbers chapter 20 where Moses was commanded by God to speak to a rock in order that it might bring forth water for his thirsty people. But Moses was apparently even more angry in his in his human nature than God was at the people. So Moses goes over there and he remembers that one time before he had hit the rock and water came out and Moses in his anger and his frustration misrepresents God in a major way. He strikes the rock with his staff. God in his mercy allows the water to come forth but basically says, Moses, you don't know what you just screwed up. You don't know what you just misrepresented. I told you to speak to the rock. You hit the rock. And that was a major misrepresentation. Why? Because, uh, and it's a whole other message, a whole other thing, but the, the awesome picture in that is, is Paul tells us what? That Jesus was the rock. That Jesus would be smitten once, that is struck. He would be broken on the cross. And living water would flow out. But after that point, Jesus wouldn't have to be crucified again and again, but we would merely have to speak to him. 
and he would pour out upon us his blessing. You know, Moses, when he was angry and screwed up, didn't realize what he was really messing up <laughs> in misrepresenting God in such a, a, a way. But the point is, is that Moses, Moses, even in his hero status, even in his might and, and how God used him, was nothing more that the Hebrews tells us here than a servant. He was a servant. He was a man whom God used. Where Jesus was more than a man, he was God himself in human flesh. In early 2000, uh, Ariel Sharon from Israel and, and George Bush scheduled a, a meeting, and Sharon was late, and Bush was upset about it. And Sharon told him, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but I was taking, uh, talking to someone more important than you. And Bush was thinking, how dare him? How could, you, how could you get someone more important than the President of the United States? And Sharon told him, well, I was talking to Moses. And Bush was impressed. He said, well, can I, can I talk to Moses too? And Sharon pulled out his cell phone and whispered a conversation, and he turned to George W., and he informed him, Mr. President, I'm sorry, Moses said he doesn't want to talk to you. The president was shocked. Why? He said, well, because the last time he talked to a bush, it cost him 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> so, Moses was faithful in his house, and that comes from uh, uh, the book of, of Numbers, which we'll see in a moment. But no, notice, as faithful as Moses was, he couldn't cut it. Not only could Moses not meet all the requirements of the perfect leader, but his brother Aaron and the line of priests were imperfect priests as well. When we get to, down the line, Eli, the high priest, we see another priest who lacked in faithfulness to God. And at that time, when Eli was, was messing up things with him and his family and misrepresenting God, a prophet came to Eli, rebuking him for his unfaithfulness to God. And the prophet then made this prophecy. And it's found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. God speaks through the prophet, Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And, and of course, who was that perfect priest that the prophet was prophesying of that would come? Jesus, of course. That Jesus would be the one, not Moses, not Aaron, not the priests, not the Levites, but Jesus would be the one who would be a faithful high priest in every point, representing the heart and the mind of God. Now, it's easy to see why the Hebrews were so enamored with Moses and would even be tempted to go back to Moses, to back to, uh, to what is safe and what they knew. So the author makes the case that Jesus was even more faithful than Moses. Never once did Jesus misrepresent the heart or the truth or the character of God. If you want to see the Father, you just look at the Son, it's an exact representation, a mere image. You see, unlike Moses, Jesus didn't simply speak face to face with God. Jesus was the face of God. Jesus didn't simply perform miracles. He was the source of the miracles. He didn't merely lead Israel into a physical promised land. He succeeded in leading all humanity who would follow him out of the Slavery of death and the devil and into life. God delivered his grace through Jesus. Forever it would be called, according to John 1.17, the grace and truth of Jesus. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Jesus sculpted a band of former spiritual slaves into a mighty spiritual army. And when Jesus tried, uh, died, they didn't hide his body. They tried to bury it. And of course it didn't work. Because three days later, he conquered death forever. See, Jesus was faithful. Jesus is faithful. And what a blessed reality for us as we consider Jesus to realize that the faithfulness of Jesus cannot fail us. I will tell you right now, your pastor will fail you. I will hopefully, I'm not planning on it, okay, just so you know. <laughs> But I'm a man. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a failure. I'm constantly struggling and dealing with my own failings and Christ's sanctification in my life. Your spouse will fail you. 
I know you were hoping that you wouldn't hear that. It's true, though. Your children will fail you. Your friends will fail you. Religion, if you're counting on religion to give you some sort of identity or peace with God, religion will fail you. Churches will fail you. Life itself will fail you. But Jesus will never fail you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And one day we will all open our eyes in eternity, realizing and recognizing that Jesus was right the entire time. And all of his promises came to pass. And here's the, the, the final thought of this point here in, in, the, in verse, verse 2, is that because Jesus is faithful to us, he is worthy of our continued faith in him. That we must press on when we're tempted to shrink back. That we must remain faithful to Christ. We are to honor the faithfulness of Jesus above all other faithfulness. Number two, we're to honor the position of Jesus. We're to honor the position of Jesus. Verses three through six. For this one, speaking of Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, and he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, that's Numbers 12, verse 7, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Here he speaks of building houses. And I don't know if anyone here has, has ever built a house. I had the, uh, the privilege of building a house once, once we were able to build a house. And um, I had very little to do with it. You know, I went in there and I said, uh, I, I want that finish in here and I want that flooring in here. And, you know, but, uh, and then there were people who came in and they did all the work, right? They were the hired hands. But then there was the, the con general contractor and he's the one who drew the plans and designed the plans and made sure everything out was, was, was to lay out exactly as it should and the job was to get done in a certain order. And here, God paints a picture of, of his people, Israel, and he's saying Moses was, was like a, a master builder. He was a hired hand by God who was the designer and the architect and the actual builder of the house. Moses was just a worker in God's house. And if the one who was hired to build the house was honored, how much more, should, how much more honor should be the one who owns the house, who hired him, who designed, who architected, who built the house through him? The glory of the creator, in other words, always outweighs the glory of that which is created. The glory of the stars and of the galaxies and of creation is amazing. It's awe-inspiring. But that is so minimal to the one who inspired them, who thought of them, who created them, who called them into being. He is the one who deserves more honor than that thing which he created. In the same way, Moses received glory and honor for his role and building the house of Israel. As God said of him in Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. Moses was a faithful builder. Much like Paul was a builder within the household of God, the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9 through 11, Paul says this, for we are God's workers, fellow workers, you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Another builds on it. But let each one take heed to how he builds. Listen, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And that foundation of Jesus Christ as the Son of God is the foundation which Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And this is the one thing that provides me so much comfort when I look at the failures of the church and the humans in it throughout the years. Is that at the end of the day, when churches fail or leaders fail or people let you down or there's conflict in church or there's relational conflict with other Christians and you're just disappointed and you're just disillusioned and you're a little, little frustrated, that you have the promise that you are still God's workmanship. You are still God's house, the dwelling place of God in the Spirit, and He is building what He's going to build if we simply have the humility 
to let him work on us. I, I hope this new year, you and I all have the humility to let God do some work on us. Build us into the house that he wants us to be. Jesus is building up his spiritual house. And notice verse 6. Speaking of Christ, the master builder, this is an important verse, verse 6. He says, whose house we are, that is you and I, we are his house, whose house you are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. I'm not going to minimize this verse. If is a huge conditional statement, which means if then. Here's the promise, but there's a condition, and it's the if. You are God's house if you hold fast the confidence and rejoicing of hope, firm into the end. You see, Jesus is our only hope for eternal life. But what happens when someone abandons the hope of Christ? What happens when they lose confidence in Christ and Christ alone? What happens when someone goes from seeing Jesus as their greatest blessing to seeing Jesus as their greatest burden? Who goes from trusting in the work of Christ to trusting in something else or abandoning Christ altogether? I don't have all the answers to those questions, but what I do know is the rest of the passage is a warning to those who call themselves the people of God. What happens when people start to distance themselves from God and from Christ is a hardening of heart towards the voice of God until rebellion sets in. Next, the author illustrates this point by bringing us to the Old Testament example of the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness who initially came out of Egypt but they never entered into the promised land because they didn't continue in their faith. They didn't believe and trust in their God. A hard heart set in to where they didn't believe the promises of God anymore. And so the rest of this, this study is, comes in the form of a warning. I think there might be some, hopefully not, but there might be some here who need this warning, some watching online that need this warning. We all need to be reminded of it, though. And that is our third and final point this morning is honor the voice of Jesus. We must honor the voice of Jesus. Verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. First, I want you to note in verse 7 that he sets a precedent. He says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, you might want to underline that because uh, the author of Hebrews, which I believe is Paul the Apostle, recognizes the divine authorship of the Scriptures. The author is going to quote Psalm 95, but he indicates that it wasn't merely the psalmist who was speaking, but it was the Holy Spirit who was speaking through the psalmist. That book you have in your hand, that Bible, that's what we believe. They are words written by people who were inspired by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, when you open that book and you read the words, they are spiritually alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and the Holy Spirit is still speaking through them to us today. Amen? That's what we believe. The Holy Spirit is speaking. And he says he wrote, the Holy Spirit said, which He's about to remind people, when God speaks, don't ignore him. And next he quotes the author from the Psalms. And Psalm 95, interestingly enough, is a psalm that relates to those who were standing at the doors of the promised land and yet through fear and unbelief refused to go into God's promises. They rejected all but two Remember the 12 spies that went out into the land of Canaan and they came back with reports of giants in the land and they set fear in among all the people. There's no way we can do this. There's giants in the land. It's too hard. It's too difficult. And the people all bought into their, to their fear 
except for two, Joshua and Caleb, who had to wait another 40 years <laughs> till that whole generation of people died out and didn't enter. And this is a powerful thought. I want you to keep this umbrella picture in your mind as we move through this next passage. That you had millions of people who came out of Egypt. They were delivered. They were free. Who never entered and never crossed the Jordan into God's promised land. I want you to just keep that picture in your mind. And here's the exhortation again in verse 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You know, there were many incidents in the wilderness wanderings that reflect the truth of what the author says right here in this scripture. From the get-go, almost all the people who came out of Egypt display that they were complainers and rebels at heart. They doubted God's promise of deliverance. They despised God's supernatural provision. They They derided God's appointed leaders. When God did protect them and did provide them, it was never good enough for them. They complained to God that they were hungry, and then God gave them food, and they complained about the kind of food God gave them. They complained about the difficulties of wandering through the wilderness, despite the fact that they had a guiding cloud by day and fire by night, despite the fact that their sandals never wore thin, despite the fact that they had everything they needed from moment to moment and day to day, they would complain, why have you brought us out here to die? We had it better back in, back in Egypt. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're lost. Our leaders are horrible. And on and on and on they went. Let's build ourselves some idols. Let's disobey and rebel against God. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against Moses. They even disregarded God's divine law. And eventually their own lusts and desires created within them Right right here we're told a hardness of heart to the voice of God. When God finally got to the point and said, go into that land. Listen, this amazes me. Despite that whole 40 years in the wilderness, God still gave them the opportunity. Go into that land. Face those giants. This is a promise I've given you. And they said, yeah, no, we'll do this our way. Thanks, but no thanks. God. And all that culminated in a place called Kadesh, where God, after 40 years, declared his final judgment on that generation of people. In Numbers 14, at the pinnacle of their disobedience and their unbelief, the Bible says the following. Numbers 14, verses 23, excuse me, 22 through 32. God says, Because all these men who have seen my glory... And the signs which I did in Egypt and in all the wilderness have put me to the test ten times and have not taken heed to my voice. They certainly shall not see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. And this warning is troubling to the one who is on the fence about Jesus. The author is clear that his audience might be in the same predicament as the unbelieving Israelites in the wilderness. Now, I didn't write this. Remember, he said, you are holy brethren. You're partakers of the heavenly calling. Yet for some of you, there might be a temptation to a heart of unbelief, to the same fate as those who went before, who saw God's works, who heard God's voice who experienced God's provision and God's goodness and complained and, and in a faithless heart of unbelief never experienced God's promise. And next, he drives the application home to his audience in this trembling exhortation, verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you 
an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. I have to believe in this passage that the potential of a heart of unbelief is not far from any of us. And in order to avoid the slow process of heart hardening, there are several things the author says we must do. You might want to jot them down. Number one, he says, constantly be aware of the condition of your heart. Constantly be aware of the condition of your heart. Every day, every weekend, you and I hear the voice of God through his word. Yes or no? When you open that Bible in your one-year reading plan, you have the potential to hear the voice of God. Now, sometimes we don't because we're just checking off our list and we're just mentally just reading a book. But when we are intent on hearing from God, he will speak to us in his word. We hear the voice of God through the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Yes or no? We're doing something we ought not to be doing. We're making a decision that we ought not to be making. And all of a sudden, we hear that voice in our heart and in our mind saying, don't go that way, don't do that thing. We don't have God's peace. We're being led. We are being guided. We're being directed by the voice of God. And also, apparently, we experience the voice of God through the voice of other Christians, as we'll see in a moment. But here, the first thing is that we are to be aware of the condition of our heart. Where is your heart today in regards to hearing from God, being obedient to God? You see, you start complaining about how hard it is to follow Jesus, how much better life was before Christ, or to chase idols that give you temporary fulfillment, or decide on a way that's better than God's way. You resist God's promise, you resist his conviction, you resist his word because your way seems to make more sense to you, or your fears are bigger than God's promises. But here's the the thing, when we stop trusting God and we wane from following Christ, The Bible says there's an issue going on in our hearts. For Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And apparently, none of us has has passed the potential of slowly, a slow hardening of heart that becomes blindness to our need for Christ. And so how do we beware? We must ask ourselves the hard questions. It's a New Year's, call it a New Year's resolution, a fresh start. Ask yourself the hard questions. Am I tending towards unbelief in my relationship with God? If I am, it's wickedness at work in me. But notice, number two, that we're not only supposed to be aware of the condition of our own hearts, but we must be daily engaged with God and each other. I want you to notice the emphasis on the word today in the passage, mentioned, I think, three times. Today, if you hear his voice, exhort one another today while it is still called today. There's something about the immediate that is important to God. Why? Because none of us is promised tomorrow. In other words, listen, very important. God might be giving you an opportunity to respond to him that might not be an opportunity tomorrow. You get what I'm saying? God might be reaching into your heart to a place of hardness that's developed where you've been resisting his voice, resisting his call, resisting obedience to him. And he's saying, now is the moment to respond to that because you think, oh, I'll just deal with it later. I'll just do my thing now and maybe tomorrow things will get better. I know I need to tell my wife I'm sorry for that. I know I need to repent for the sin I did there. I know I need to 
uh, soften my heart again because I've been angry at God for something that he didn't do or something that, that didn't go my way, and I've just been resisting it, and I'll deal with it tomorrow. You might not have tomorrow, my friend. But what you do have is right now. And this is why we must be daily engaged. If you hear his voice through the word or the conviction of the Holy Spirit or the exhortation of another believer, respond now. And I love the other implication here because the Bible says we must be passionate about engaging one another and exhorting one another to love and good works. He's going to mention this again later. We are not to neglect the gathering together of the saints, as is a manner of some, but to exhort one another, and even more so as we see the day approaching. Apparently, listen, very important, and I'm almost done, true Christian fellowship is the remedy to a slowly hardening heart and a waning faith. Let me say that again. Listen carefully. True Christian fellowship is the remedy to a hardening heart and a waning faith. If your heart is beginning to harden, the worst thing you can do is to separate yourself from other Christians. I don't need to go to church, I have those hypocrites. I don't need to go to the, the small groups. I don't need people in my life. I don't need to meet with someone in the morning to pray. I don't need to confess my sin to another Christian. That is called pride, not wisdom. We need each other. We need to confess our sins to one another. We need to pray for each other. We need to have the courage and the love to look at someone who's slipping and to say, hey, my friend, I see you slipping. And I don't like how the end of the road looks for you. And I say this not because I'm a hypocritical judge, but because I'm a loving brother or sister in Christ who cares about your spiritual health and vitality and where you're headed. Exhort one another while it's still called today. You and I don't ever, shouldn't ever underestimate the power of our involvement in each other's lives. See, he warns us that we can easily be hardened, and I love this phrase in verse 13, through the deceitfulness of sin, which tells me that sin is a liar that deceives the heart into becoming calloused against God. It's almost like that vacuum cleaner, you know? You vacuum the carpet, you vacuum the carpet, and you don't really see what's going on until you empty the bag. And then you see what was in the carpet, and you went, oh, that's nasty. That's what the deceitfulness of sin does. It's so tricky that it works slowly. Satan is patient. Sin is patient. It doesn't have to destroy your life tomorrow. It can just plant a little seed that will destroy your life in 10 years or 15 years. The guy glancing occasionally at pornography never said in his mind, one day I'm going to leave my wife for another woman, lose my family, get kicked out of the church, and question the existence with go of God. It's not how it starts off. The gal who had one extra drink over the limit during girls' night out never thought, one day I'll be an alcoholic who's wallowing in depression and doubting if God is even real anymore. The guy who cheated on the business deal to get a little extra gain never said to himself, one day I'm going to be a greedy, rotten scoundrel whose God is wealth and and pleasure, and drift away from being anchored in Christ. No one who loves the Lord initially sets off intentionally on a course of being far from God. It happens one little compromise at a time, which leads us to the third and final exhortation, and that is to be steadfast in our faith. We must be aware of the condition of our hearts. We need to be daily engaged with God and each other, but we also need to be steadfast and immovable in our faith. Notice again the conditional statement, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And I want to make a note here that 
What the author is not talking about is the occasional and honest questions that we have for God. Has anyone ever had a question for God? Okay, that's honest. There have been plenty of elements of my faith throughout the years of following Jesus where I've gone, I don't understand that. That makes me have a question. Man, that, that even tempts me to doubt. I'm going to be honest. I've, I've had all those moments where I'm thinking, I don't fully get this. No, he's talking about a hardness of heart that sets in that eventually lets the ifs and the what ifs and the questions become bigger than the answer. Listen to how author Kent Hughes describes it. I love, I love him. He says, The problem today is that so many people, when asked about faith, point to their exodus when they begin with Christ. They can wax eloquent about their experiences with God. How dare anyone can question that? They went forward. They left Egypt. They were baptized. They identified with God's people. But troubles came. Difficulties set in, and they turned away. Some people's exodus is a convenient memory, but to trust God now, that's a problem, for their faith is dead. In short, a faith that was isn't necessarily a faith that is. How current is your faith? The people of Israel might have successfully been delivered out of Egypt, but they never made it into Canaan, which tells me this, that our exit from Egypt is only the beginning of our faith journey. We must continue strong until we enter the ultimate promised land, which is why in verse 15 he closes this little section by saying, today, repeating himself, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Count them as an example. A few years back, I took a hike. One of our favorite hikes in Northern California was on the South Yuba River. We had a great time. We spent, spent with the kids, took my kids on a hike, and we were skipping rocks in the river. And I picked up this rock, and I, I, I always kept a picture of it because it reminded me of a verse and of course, it was a heart of stone. And according to Ezekiel 36, that in Christ, God can take the human heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, a soft heart that is sensitive to his spirit and to his word, and that has a desire to obey his voice. But apparently, and I don't say this lightly, Hebrews teaches us that unbelief and a lack of faith can reverse the softness of our hearts until they become calloused once again through disobedience, through rebellion, and through a lack of faith in Christ. I'll conclude it with one statement as I thought through all this, simply that a heart that hears God but doesn't heed God will ultimately harden toward God. Remember that, church. A heart that hears God but doesn't heed God will ultimately harden towards God. Let's not forget that our faith is more than simply believing a set of truths with our minds. It is trusting in Jesus for the journey. Between the deliverance of our Egypt from our Egypt, our sin, our enslavement to death and devil, all the way until we enter the gates of heaven, we must hold fast to Christ. What is Jesus speaking to you today? The worst thing you can do is resist it or dismiss it. You can have your doubts. You can have your questions. That's allowed. God is not too big for your questions. But don't allow your unbelief, your cynicism or your doubt lead you away from the ultimate answer. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, a verse many of us know well. Jesus, not speaking to the unbelieving world, but to the church, says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus knocks on the door of his church, of every heart of every believer, saying, 
don't forget to keep letting me in. Don't close certain areas of your life off to fellowship with me. And as I look at Jesus standing at the door and knocking, I also realize that Jesus told us there will become a time when the door is closed. In Luke chapter 13, and I'll end here, verse 24 through 27, Jesus said, Strive to enter the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and not be able to. When once the master of the house has risen up and he shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open for me, he will not answer you, but he will say to you, I do not know you. Where are you from? And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know you. Where are you from? Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And the application, of course, I believe, is uh, answer the door when God is knocking, because there will be a time when you might be knocking, and it's too late. There's a point here that Jesus deserves the greatest honor, more than our greatest political hero or spiritual heroes or otherwise. To honor Christ means to honor his faithfulness as a servant and high priest of our confession, to honor his position as one greater than Moses, greater than the law, and to honor his voice by obeying him when he speaks to us. Such a bummer way to start the new year, Josh. No, listen, it's the best exhortation we can get. God's intentions and plans for you are good. But the safest place we can be is in obedience to Christ, to consider Jesus and all that he wants to do in our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this hard and strong word. Looking to a, a people who were saying, maybe we should abandon Jesus and just go back, back to Egypt, back to Judaism, back to the law. And yet, Lord, the Holy Spirit speaks to us today. Don't be tempted to be led astray. Don't harden your heart. Don't walk forward in unbelief. Lord, I pray for each one of us here today to have soft and sensitive hearts to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, to obedience to the Word of God, to the encouragement and exhortation from fellow believers one to another. That we would not simply see Christianity as part of our lives, but that we would see you as our very life. That we would fix our eyes upon you, Jesus, and allow the light of who you are to cause the things of the world to fade in the distance. Lord, we pray that, I pray that there would be, if there's anyone in here or watching today that might feel as though they are on the verge of unbelief, on the verge of throwing in the towel, saying, you know what, forget this Jesus thing, forget this God thing, forget this church thing, I want to do my own thing that they would know that you have appointed them here today to respond to your invitation of life, of forgiveness of sin, of hope for the future, that no one here would continue to walk in areas that you are trying to speak to them about. Lord, I humble myself before you as well, knowing that there are always things that you want to speak. I pray you give us all hearts that are soft enough to hear and humble enough to respond to the voice of Jesus. Thank you for all you've done, Lord. Together as a church, as a body of believers, 
We want to commit ourselves to you afresh and anew this, this new year, that you would do mighty and great things in us and through us for your glory. We pray for our nation, that you would humble the heart of our nation to repent from its wickedness and to turn to their God and to the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, once again. We pray for revival, true revival in, in your church that would lead us to lives of holiness consecrated to you. We pray for St. Joseph that a mighty move of your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the streets in and through and in each, in each and every home and family. Lord, I pray for every husband and wife that they would be reestablished upon the rock of your word, that you would reconcile hearts towards one another, that you'd bring families together, that you would heal past hurts, that you would bring forgiveness, repentance of sin, and mercy and grace into every life. Lord, we pray that churches that are preaching your gospel and teaching your word in this town would explode with people seeking your hope and your truth. Lord, we look to you for the things to come. Our trust and our hope is in you. We declare that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.